KUAF is supported by Hendricks College. With the Tuition Advantage Scholarship, admitted first-year students will pay no more in tuition at Hendricks than the published tuition and fees rate at their home state's public flagship university. Hendricks.edu slash tuition advantage for more. The Eureka Springs Original Ozark Folk Festival, featuring John Fulbright, Melissa Carper, and Brennan Lee, takes place November 9th through the 11th. More at eurekasprings.org. Happy Halloween. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, October 31st, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. We are a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Today's show includes a preview of the works and influences of Charles Portis Symposium taking place this week at the University of Arkansas Fort Smith. The author of True Grit, Dog of the South, Norwood, and other books will be celebrated Thursday through Saturday. More about that in our second half hour. First, workers and activists in Springdale are taking aim at Tyson Foods in light of a new investigation opened by the U.S. Department of Labor into possible child labor violations. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has this report. Earlier this month, a group of protesters gathered at the corner of Thompson Street and Don Tyson Parkway on a warm Monday afternoon. The group, made up of a coalition of North American worker organizations, marched to the Tyson headquarters in Springdale. Suzanne Adley, co-director of the National Food Chain Workers Alliance, spoke to the crowd outside the headquarters. And we came here today to Arkansas with our brothers and sisters at Venceremos to give a message. We are watching and we are listening. We will not tolerate their exploitation for profit and we will not tolerate the exploitation of our children for your profit. Tyson, Tyson, what do you say? How much money did you make Child today? labor was one of the main concerns brought by workers during this protest. In September, the U.S. Department of Labor opened an investigation into Tyson Foods and Purdue Farms to determine if the poultry manufacturers used migrant children to clean slaughterhouses. And in February, a company contracted by Tyson to clean meatpacking plants paid almost $91,000 in penalties for unlawfully employing six miners at a Tyson facility in Green Forest, Arkansas. The fine was part of a larger $1.5 million in civil penalties that Packer Sanitation Services Incorporated paid for employing kids as young as 13 to work in dangerous conditions in factories across the U.S. Maria Ruvalcaba is one of the protesters. She worked at a Tyson factory processing chicken for 16 years and she says the company owes workers and consumers transparency and accountability about working conditions. They lie too much too. They say one thing and they do another thing. So that's why we, we think and we see that uh, something happened, you know, in the company. And uh, that's the, one of the other reasons we decided to go to the, to the street. Magali Likali is the founder of Vinceremos, an advocacy organization for poultry workers in Arkansas and the organizer of this protest. She says she often hears from workers about instances of kids working at plants and poultry farms. We hear through the workers and from the workers is that the large number of kids coming to work in the chicken farms 
Earlier this year, Legally says she helped two migrant teenagers from Guatemala recover wages from a Tyson supplier. They didn't speak Spanish or English. Uh, they were forced to work 16 hours straight during that shift, forcing them to upload almost 6,000 birds to the truck. They were too tired to finish the job, and the contractor just fired them. And they were too afraid. And so when you talk to this population, the majority of them are undocumented. The kids are coming with an asylum status that don't really understand the laws in this country or the language itself. Tyson's company code of conduct states that suppliers are expected to ensure they do not use child labor. Legally says the company needs to do more to keep underage workers out of its supply chain. Really is talking about the accountability of the supply chain of these corporations like Tyson, right? Not acceptable that a company, family-owned business company, says we are not taking responsibility because those are not the workers that we hire. No, but those workers are, are working so that you have a product to sell, right? Arkansas law prohibits kids under the age of 16 from working more than eight hours a day, more than six days a week, and more than 48 hours per week. Minors are also not allowed to work after 7 p.m. on nights preceding a school day and after 9 p.m. on weekends. In February, just two weeks after the Department of Labor's investigation into Packer Sanitation Services, Arkansas lawmakers approved the Youth Hiring Act, which removes the requirement for kids under 16 to obtain a work permit from the state's Division of Labor before they can be hired. Annie Smith is a professor with the University of Arkansas Law School focused on human trafficking and labor exploitation. And that form, which is no longer required, was potentially helpful, particularly to good actor employers who wanted to do the right thing, because the form contained on it information about some of the restrictions on the work that 14 and 15-year-olds can do, including when and where they can work. And employers had to include the hours and types of work that that particular child was going to do. So that would have been an opportunity for the State Department of Labor to intervene and say, hey, actually, this would run afoul of our state or federal laws that is now lost. And it was also a means to ensure that our state had some level of awareness of workplaces where young people were going to be working so that perhaps it could direct its limited enforcement tools um, and, and manpower to those particular workplaces to make sure that the young people working there were doing okay and being treated in the ways that they should be. The state legislature also passed a bill that would increase civil penalties for employers illegally employing minors. Smith says that law is still not enough and the loosening of other requirements undermines this. You know, the lower end amount is $100 per violation. That's not a big economic incentive to necessarily comply with the law, especially if the likelihood of getting caught is quite low. Data points that child labor violations in the U.S. are on the rise. The Department of Labor reported that minors employed in violation of federal labor laws was up 37 percent from 2015. Smith says to address this, policymakers need to look at underlying causes like market pressure and the rise of subcontracted workers. I think we also have young people and families who need financial resources and don't have what they need. We could look at rates of childhood hunger in Arkansas and around the U.S., right? There's economic pressures um, that push children into workplaces, children who might prefer to be at school or sometimes who are doing both, going to school and working. 
Smith also points to stronger whistleblower protections as a possible remedy. Well, a lot of those violations are invisible to the public until there is some sort of government investigation or until there's reporting on the issue. And so I think um, the folks who are best poised to answer those questions are workers themselves, worker communities, uh, worker advocates and organizers. And this is what Magali Legally says she wants out of this protest. Well, of course, they have a code of conduct. They have the corporate social responsibility, right? But what we are bringing and what we want to fight for is for a worker-driven social responsibility that is driven by workers and led by workers and created by workers, you know, because without having the workers involved in this, there is no way that the conditions are going to change. Corporations can have a best code of conduct that you can read, but if it's not connected to the workers, if there is not consequences, if the workers don't even know about this code of conduct, that is just there for, like, to show. She says she also wants to see the company take accountability. We often have seen Tyson respond to, like, we don't know, like, ignoring or denying the, the investigations. And that's really not the response, right, that we want to see. So we want Tyson to at least acknowledge that there is a problem and that that needs to be solved to end child labor within their supply chain. According to a spokesperson from the U.S. Department of Labor, the investigation into Tyson Foods is still ongoing. Tyson did not respond to a request for comment from Ozarks at Large in time for air. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. The second of two symposia dedicated to the future of healthcare in Arkansas will be Thursday at the Fayetteville Town Center. Hosted by the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, or ACI, the symposium will feature a keynote address from Sean Dubovrak, who examines disruptive technological shifts in business, healthcare, finance, and culture. There will be panels discussing making sure Arkansas has a stable healthcare workforce by the middle of this century, and another panel examining what innovations will affect the future of healthcare in Arkansas. More details about the symposium can be found at ACI.net. Thursday's Fayetteville Symposium follows an earlier one. It was held in Little Rock last week. Later this hour, the University of Arkansas Fort Smith is saluting Charles Portis. People are drawn to Portis because he is so funny, but he, he, he picks up on the oddball in society so well. Again, uh, many of his short stories or, or journalistic pieces, he might be traveling and you've stayed in a motel like that. When he describes <laughs> trying to start the car that way and somebody comes up and wants to borrow your jumper, jumper cables, you've met those people. The novel's True Grit, Norwood. Plus, examining the legacy of Charles Portis at a three-day symposium. More about that in our second half hour. Do you have a story to tell? Come by the Listening Lab at KUAF and share it with us. 
All you have to do is go online to kuaflisteninglab.com and click on Share Your Story. And after submitting your request, we'll reach out to schedule a time for you to come by the KUAF studio. And you can listen to past conversations from the Listening Lab anytime at kuaflisteninglab.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The 25th annual Arkansas poll was released yesterday, and it reports an approval rating for Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders of 48%, marking the lowest approval rating of an Arkansas governor in the poll in 20 years, dating back to her father, Governor Mike Huckabee, in 2003. Other elected officials also received approval ratings below 50%. Senator John Bozeman received a 40% approval rating, Senator Tom Cotton 42%, and President Joe Biden's job received a 33% approval rating. 36% of those polled indicated that the most important issue facing people in Arkansas is the economy. That's the third consecutive year the economy has topped that list. In a press release, Arkansas poll director and professor of political science at the University of Arkansas, Janine Perry, says a volatile economic and political environment is likely influencing some people's general sense of well-being. You'll hear a more expansive conversation about the finding of the poll on a future edition of Ozarks at Large. A Kansas state court judge is blocking a set of state laws restricting abortions provided by Planned Parenthood Great Plains. The restrictions force providers of both medicated and surgical abortion to convey messaging to patients prior to care, claiming abortion increases the risk for future premature births and breast cancer. State-imposed waiting periods and pro-life intake forms have also been blocked by the court ruling, which was issued yesterday. Kansas voters in August 2022 approved a ballot measure legalizing access to safe abortion for pregnant people in that state, as well as surrounding states where abortion has been banned, including Arkansas. The lawsuit was filed in June by the Center for Reproductive Rights and Planned Parenthood on behalf of Kansas abortion providers, arguing the restrictions violate the state constitutional rights to abortion as well as free speech. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is appointing Joshua Robinson as prosecuting attorney for the 19th West Judicial District, which is composed of Benton County. He'll replace Nathan Smith, and his term will last until the end of 2024. A pandemic-inspired performance by the University of Arkansas Schola Cantorum is receiving national recognition. Falling for you, I realize I'm never going to see anything like your eyes, and so I'm going to stay every day by your side and never be the cause of the tears that you cry. The Scola Cantorum's version of the 1980s pop song Take On Me has been awarded third place for the 2023 American Prize in Virtual Performance. The video was conceptualized during the pandemic, and students recorded their parts virtually and individually. Eventually, more than 500 clips were edited together for the final performance. The music was arranged, recorded, and edited by Stephen Caldwell, Associate Professor of Music. The video has received more than a quarter million views across social media platforms. Schools in Van Buren and Little Rock are among the winners in the 2023 Arkansas-grown School Garden of the Year contest. Joshua Academy in Van Buren earned the award for Best Startup School Garden Proposal, while Pinnacle View Middle School in Little Rock was named Best Education-Based School Garden. Those honors come with $500 awards for the schools. Raina Elementary School in Van Buren will receive a $1,000 prize for winning the Champion of School Garden Sustainability Award. Arkansas Congressman Bruce Westerman is one of three members of the U.S. House sponsoring legislation recognizing October as National Dyslexia Awareness Month. 
Congressman Westerman is also a sponsor of the bipartisan 21st Century Dyslexia Act. Authors say the legislation works to incorporate the modern scientific understanding of dyslexia into federal statute and prevent the harm unidentified dyslexia can inflict on young students. And the next Razorback football game in Fayetteville will be a mid-afternoon affair. The SEC announced yesterday the Arkansas-Auburn game on Saturday, November 11th will kick off at 3. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. The Smokehouse Players' next production is early next month with three nights of John Robin Bates' Other Desert Cities. The unique elements of the company's process remain in place. Admission is by donation. The play is in the former chiller room of the original Ozark Mountain Smokehouse on the western edge of Fayetteville along Highway 62. And the first night's proceeds are all directed toward Magdalene Serenity House, transitional housing for women who've experienced trauma, sexual exploitation, addiction, and incarceration. Joy Morris, the development director for Magdalene Serenity House, says those first night play donations are important. It's huge to us, the amount of awareness and funding that the Smokehouse players have raised for Magdalene House have been extraordinary, and we truly wouldn't be where we are as a relatively newer organization without the involvement and support. Last year, after a two-year hiatus because of COVID-19, Smokehouse players presented three plays in one year, and those three first-night proceeds combined for more than $29,000 in donations. This year, Smokehouse founders Terry Vaughn and Tim Gilster are pulling back a bit, producing just one show. Terry says it isn't easy to find the right show to produce given the idiosyncratic nature of their venue. Because it needs to be a one-set show because we're performing in the, you know, converted refrigerator that is the chilling room. Um, it also has to be a small cast. And we look specifically for shows because we're offering free theater. We feel like it's an opportunity for people to see things that have been nominated for awards or that have won awards. So the quality of the play is very important to us. The Other Desert City script comes with accolades. It was a finalist for the 2012 Pulitzer for Drama and was named Outstanding New Off-Broadway Play by the Outer Critics Circle. John Robert Bates' script places us into the Wyeth household in Palm Springs, California, for a Christmas Eve in the early 2000s. Holidays, family, politics, decent chance for tension, right? Terry Vaughn, who plays the mother Polly, says the conservative Wyeth family parents and their more liberal children have clashed before, but this holiday, there's a bombshell. Our liberal daughter announces that she has written a tell-all book that is going to be published soon, that is going to humiliate her parents because the central character is our eldest son, who was a political revolutionary and committed suicide decades earlier after being uh, implicated in a violent political protest. The parents try to talk their daughter out of publishing the book. The audience is invited then to take the chaotic roller coaster that follows. Juliet Robinson is the daughter, Brooke, in this production. She says each character in the script judges and is judged. But Robinson says the magic in the play is that no character is exactly who you might think they are. Not one character in this show is one note. They all have their complexities, and the audience is forced to kind of go with us on the journey and make their assumptions and 
challenge their own views of us while we were also doing the same thing. The playwright, um, John Robin Bates, he does not make it easy on the audience um, to get like, oh, this person's the bad guy and this person's the good guy. So Brooke, she has um, just, she writes this book um, and is like, she doesn't know what's I'm trying to like say that revealing too much, mm-hmm. but Brooke, um, she doesn't come into this thinking that she's done anything terrible. So it's an interesting character for me to play because um, she's not super likable from the outset. And so you have to learn how to, um, I guess, play her and be comfortable in the uncomfortableness mm-hmm. in a complex character like her. Since its inception in 2018, Smokehouse Players has specialized in works with complicated characters, serious themes, character tension, and, yes, laughs. The actors say other desert cities provides all of that in an intimate setting. Directing the play is Billy Chase Goforth. Goforth specializes in directing movies, horror movies. But he says this first-ever stage directing job for him seems right in line with his previous work. To me, every story is a horror story. It just depends on which which character's perspective and where you start and start stop the story. Um, so it's this really I'm I'm trying to direct it like a claustrophobic film. So we're really finding the points where man, we can put this intimate setting, we can put actors just inches away from where the audience is sitting. You know, our furthest seat away is 15 feet from the performance area. Most of the seats are within like 24 inches. So you are seeing these actors so close up. You're in the room with them. He says it's all about finding the moment in the story where he and the cast want the audience to lean forward and become part of the story. At its heart, he says, the Wyatt family has struggled for a long time with truth, lies, and secrets. For all the secrets and lies... This is a story about a cursed family and passing down curses. And how long is this going to affect this family? Um, there's, a, there's a real feeling of um, the, the last time this family could have made a good decision was 20 years ago. That ship has sailed, and now they are absolutely going to deal with the consequences of secret keeping. Actor and company co-founder Terry Vaughn says like other Smokehouse productions, think last year's staging of Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, this one is designed to inspire conversation long after the curtain call. I think after they judge the characters, hopefully go home and think about how they judge others in their life that they automatically make assumptions about and they haven't even given them the opportunity to know them. The Smokehouse Players production of Other Desert Cities by John Robin Bates will be at the Ozark Mountain Smokehouse in West Fayetteville November 9th through the 11th at 7.30 each evening. There are no reservations. Admission is by donation. Seating first come, first served. The November 9th performance benefits Magdalene Serenity House, and the Smokehouse Players have at least 11 matching donors for that night. You can find out more about Magdalene Serenity House at lovehealsnwa.org, and more about the Smokehouse Players can be found at their Facebook page.
This is Ozarks at Large. You can take in almost any sport you want here. Beyond the more popular like football, basketball, baseball, golf, you can, if you know where to look, watch or play cricket, rugby, curling, and just about every variation of cycling that's been invented. We've got another one to add to the event, if you haven't already, eventing. It's an equestrian sport conducted with a single horse and a single rider competing across three different disciplines. This week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas with Randy Wilburn features Christy Zweig-Niehaus, owner of Always August Farm. It's a farm that provides both horse boarding and horse training. Randy asked her about eventing, about turning a passion into a business, and about her specific business model. It is, I would say, sports-based in that I do a particular sport. It's called eventing. And we also do a lot of jumpers, which is basically one of those three phases that make up the sport of eventing. So, so, it is so com- tell me about the three phases. Yeah. So eventing originally was started by the military. It actually was like a series of cavalry tests. And now it's evolved into the sport that it is today. It is an Olympic sport currently. And what it is, is that it's one rider and horse combination. So you don't get to switch horses in between. You do three different phases. The first is called dressage which is riding a pattern on the flat. So no no obstacles that you're going over or around. You're riding different movements at letters. Then the second is typically you'll go out on what's called cross country. So that's like galloping through fields and woods over solid obstacles that don't come down. And okay. then the third is show jumping. And there's also a sport that's just pure show jumping. And that's jumps in an arena that have the poles that fall down if you hit them. Right, right. And so what's really cool about the sport of eventing is you have to have a really good partnership with your horse because you have to be very versatile and be able to do all three of those things versus you can't just switch your horse in between and get a horse that's really good, you know, at the dressage portion, but maybe not quite such a good show jumper. So the horse that whatever horse that you use has to be versatile. Absolutely. And extremely well-trained and you have to have a really good partnership with them. And that's really what I work on at the farm, you know, with most of the people that ride there is we're working on communication between you and your horse. Yeah. And so a lot of our, you know, our whole training program is all about trying to find the most effective way to communicate with your horse. And then also a lot of it is also about building fitness and building all those different skills that you're going to need to do those three different phases. Yeah. Now, was Christopher Reeves Superman? Was he in eventing when yes, he, he got injured? Yeah. Okay, I thought as much. So, well, I only say all that to say, yeah, there's some famous people that have taken up eventing, and it's not necessarily an easy sport. No, it's not, and it is dangerous. <laughs> and I don't want to gloss over that fact. I will say, especially in recent years, the sport has done a lot to try to improve its safety through different committees and using different technology, implementing them on the jumps, even the solid jumps. They now have things that are called frangible devices so that if you hit a jump, it's going to come down underneath you so your horse is less likely to fall and rotate over it. And I think there's been a big movement also just about education and preparing yourself. What's great about the sport and part of the reason that I think it's a little bit addictive is that there's so many different levels to it. So as you, you know, if you are interested in eventing, you're typically going to start off at the very, very lowest level. Yeah. And then as you are proficient at each level, you can choose to move up. Now, as you get towards the upper levels of the sport, you actually have to have qualifications. You have to complete a certain number of events with without having penalties, you know, meeting certain score requirements. So they're trying to make sure that you are going to be as safe as possible as you move up to that next level, because it does 
increase in difficulty and probably danger level as you go up those levels. When I first moved out here and, and got kind of reacquainted with you and, and saw how busy you were, I was like, man, you were you were actually not only were you working in corporate America, but you were running a business, right? Always August Farm is a business. You board horses there. You manage the process. You you do a lot of work there. And I, I was always amazed that you were able to manage the two, right? Because it's hard in corporate America and you had, you've had a lot of success, but you've also had a lot of success with the business and with eventing. How were you able to kind of navigate those two paths simultaneously? Well, I'm not sure I always did the best job, but I certainly tried. I think it really was just such a slow build. So I moved here to Arkansas to go to college and I bought a little house downtown and then actually ended up becoming a real estate agent right after I graduated (laughs) with my first degree, my bachelor's degree from U of A. And so because of that, some property sort of came across my radar and I found this little place out on the top of Lake Sequoia that had some more land and, and had a little barn and some things like that. So that kind of was a logical next step for me. I think everybody always dreams, you know, if you're into horses, usually you want to keep your horses at home at some point. That's kind of the dream. And so very quickly, I realized, okay, well, if I take on one or two boarders, or that's a good way for me to sort of subsidize my own horse habit. So I had one or two horses, and then I picked up one or two boarders. So I'm just taking care of a couple extra horses in addition to mine. That's not so hard to navigate. Well, then, you know, what happens is you start going to a few shows and people say, oh, you're not so bad. Hey, would you mind teaching my kids some lessons? So then from that, I picked up a couple people that I'm teaching some lessons. And from there, it just sort of grew naturally into what it is now. So eventually, I outgrew that property. It only had a little bit under eight acres. And I purchased another property off of Haberton, which is where I am now, with 13 acres. It was just a lot more usable land. The topography is much better and the soil quality and things like that. And by that point, I realized I really did have to start thinking about it from a business mindset in order to do what I wanted to do. To have the kind of facility that I wanted to be able to ride at, I was going to have to subsidize that with some activities, you know, with boarding and training. Sure. And it really was in a lot of ways just word of mouth where people are enjoying being able to come out to the farm and ride their horse and they're having a good experience and they hear and see how the horses are cared for and they like that. And then I just, the phone just kept ringing and ringing. And so... I just sort of kept slowly growing it. And so now we have almost uh, 24 acres. And 20, really? Yeah. 20 oh, you expand, I didn't realize you expanded Absolutely. That. Okay. Yeah. So my initial, initially we bought 13 acres and then we bought an additional 10.33 to that, end up. That, that's just connected. Yeah, it's just connected. Okay. So that's, you know, when we did that, that's when I realized, okay, I've got to really make some significant improvements in order to be able to finance all that out. So we built a giant covered arena, which is what everybody knows us for now. Sure. Which also allowed me to be able to continue to teach and people be able to ride, you know, in the evenings. It has great lights. And also in in inclement weather, we have a little bit of a better place to ride. Now, I'm feeling bad because clearly the pen, I used to come out to your place quite a bit, but that was pre-pandemic. Yes. So clearly a lot of the, a lot of things have happened at Always August Farm that I need to come out and check out for myself. So. And I will say the pandemic was quite a tipping point. So I guess two things sort of happened right before the pandemic. I was injured in a horse related accident and which I, happens. Yeah, which is it does happen. And so I kind of put out there, I think I put something on Facebook where I said, hey, you know, I'm going to be not riding quite as much. So I'll take a few people on to coach. So I'll do a little bit more teaching. And that had a much larger response than I think I initially <laughs> anticipated. And then, you know, we signed on to buy that additional property and do those improvements. 
And then basically when COVID happened, now suddenly everybody was working from home and kids were out of school and had more free time. I also was then able to work from home, which allowed me to have greater flexibility in the hours that I was working. Right. So my business almost just doubled overnight. People that were taking one lesson said, well, let's take two. And then they want to bring a friend. And so then I have even more. And I think it was just a great, safe outdoor activity for everybody to be involved in. And everybody suddenly had more flexibility in their schedule. Christy Zweig Niehaus is the owner of Almost August Farm. Her entire conversation with Randy Wilburn can be heard on this week's episode of Randy's I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find it at imnorthwestarkansas.com, at kuaf.com, or where you already collect your podcasts. We share excerpts from each week's episode almost every Tuesday on Ozarks at Large. Hi, it's Steve Inskeep. At Morning Edition, we're honored that people from around the world trust us with their stories. We are a family that was broken up by migration when my father left. We need our elders. They're our language holders. They're our culture sharers. We need some changes. Things must change. Join us for Morning Edition from NPR News for stories that bring the news to life. Morning edition tomorrow morning from 5 until 9. This is Ozarks at Large. Arkansas native Charles Portis left a literary and journalism legacy far beyond his novel True Grit. Though, honestly, that book would be enough for most writers' legacies. Earlier this year, the Library of America published his collected works. And you'll be able to dive into the author's creativity this week at the Works and Influences of Charles Portis Symposium, beginning Thursday in Fort Smith and in Van Buren. Hosted by the University of Arkansas Fort Smith, the symposium includes a moderated discussion with author Jay Jennings and Portis's brother Jonathan. Yesterday, we asked Kevin Jones, professor of English at UAFS and an organizer of the symposium, and Tom Wing, a presenter at the symposium, an assistant professor of history, and director of the Drennan Scott House in Van Buren, to give us a preview of the symposium. Kevin Jones says developing interest in the subject matter pretty easy. Once we put the word out that we were doing a symposium, it it exploded. And so now we have people from University of Alabama and Pennsylvania and Kentucky, one guy's from India zooming in just because he wanted to be a part of it. So it's it's really grown. And Tom, I'm going to bring you in here in a minute. Sure. But I think it's important. This isn't the True Grit Symposium. No. It's Charles Portis. He's much more than True Grit. A lot of people think, oh, he only wrote True Grit, but he wrote uh, Dog of the South and Masters of Atlantis. Uh, Gringos was his last novel in 91. He was a journalist, obviously, in Little Rock. Uh, and then he became a bureau chief in London. So he has a long career. Um, and then, of course, his little brother became a writer as well, uh, Jonathan. And Jonathan will be at our symposium and answer questions about the family and his own writing. He did this little book called The Comeback Kid about Bill Clinton. Uh, he was a co-author on that. So that'll be good to have his take on journalism and, and the writing process as well. All right. With that noted, and we will come back to some sure. of those other works, but let's talk about True Grit, Tom Wing, because you'll be talking about True Grit a bit. Yeah. Um, it was it was fun to be uh, included in the program. Uh, Kyle, you know my background, and you know that I spent a part of my career as a historian and, and park ranger at Fort Smith National Historic Site. So the, the True Grit story is, is central to Fort Smith, and, and um, most visitors who came in the historic site had a frame of reference about Fort Smith's history from, from the True Grit book and, and the movies. 
So, uh, and, and that provides an opportunity to kind of live that down or, or to actually get them closer to the truth because fiction has a purpose and has a place, but, uh, but then you want to you wanna get them to, to the real story. So, so our session on Saturday will kind of uh, deal with uh, accuracies and inaccuracies or, you know, poetic license and, 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 uh, and how, how that happens in literature in Hollywood. So uh, we'll, be, we'll be looking at some of those things. One thing in particular, and I'll, I'll, I'm not going to spoil the program for Saturday, but, uh, but one thing that will be included is like the, the simple fact that in, in the book, um, it's mentioned that Judge Parker attended the hangings and watched the hangings. That's a very clear part in the book, and, and you kind of see that portrayed in the movies also. And um, that is just not true. Um, Parker avoided on purpose uh, being present at any of the executions in Fort Smith. So that's, that's just one of those things that, that, uh, that gets sidetracked and, and becomes part of the um, – you know, part of the story as as it as it goes to Hollywood. I'm really excited too the fact that a, a former student of mine, uh, Cody Faber, who is a park ranger and has my old job at the historic site in Fort Smith, he's going to be along uh, in that presentation on on uh, Saturday. And then also we have Larry Foley coming down from from up here. So uh, Larry's work uh, recently, uh, kind of documenting and totally covering the story of Fort Smith, includes a lot of overlapping material about uh, Charles Portis and and the book and the, and the movies. Back to the point about accuracies and inaccuracies, inaccuracies True Grit's a novel. Right. right. First and foremost, right. right? I mean, it's about the characters. Yeah. It, well, and I, I see it kind of as a gateway drug into into history mm-hmm. because people come, they've seen the movie. I mean, in, in our generation, everybody has seen the John Wayne movie, and then then you've got the Coen Brothers, and I like both of those movies for different reasons, and they have a place, and and they get they get uh, the average. A person started with the story, and then we can bring them to the historic site, or bring them to Fort Smith, or or have them in a symposium and say, "Hey, here's here's what really happened, and here's here's how creative, you know, somebody like Charles Portis was, and, and able to take that and really make it a good story." The consistency throughout all of Portis's work is the humor, and his brother would be the first to suggest that, whether it's True Grid or his. Uh, short stories or even his journalism would be how he taps into the dialogue, the uh, ear. Uh, to me, he's much like Mark Twain. You, you've met these people, and that's part of the reason why we tap into Daggett and why we tap into even Cogburn or uh, Matty Ross is their language. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite lines in, that, that Larry brought out in the, in the documentary film which was a line from from uh, True Grit, uh, and I'm 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 going to paraphrase it, but basically he's talking about Maddie's impression of Judge Parker, and um, and she's giving a little background on Parker and the fact that Parker Parker dies in 1896, and and she she mentions how he dies, and then and then on his deathbed that he became a Catholic, and it was because uh, according to Portis, and the way he wrote it was that if you'd seen uh, you know 80 80 plus men hang on the gallows, you might want a little stronger medicine than the Methodist could produce. And and it's just, again, his humor. You just laugh out loud when you hear something like that. And whether it's a period piece like that or something that was written for contemporary times like Norwood, I mean, it's the same. And that's that's also something, if people aren't that familiar with Portis beyond True Grit, he didn't write just period pieces. Norwood's hysterical. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, throwing people off of boxcars and and just little scenes like that. And I I haven't seen the film. You mentioned that was one of your first films that you had Mm -hmm. seen. But uh, I went back and I read the book, and you laugh out loud with Mm -hmm. some of those scenes. The dialogue is so good. Norwood, the novel, is far better than Norwood, 
the, the film. film. Yeah. Joe Namath That's what was heard. the lead. Right. Yeah. Glenn Campbell's in it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned Alabama, India. Right. What's I mean, just the love of his writing, his the way he he could give he voice. He is a, a, a cult, a cultural favorite. Uh, people are drawn to Portis because he is so funny, but he he, he picks up on the oddball in society so well. Uh, again, uh, many of his short stories or or journalistic pieces, he might be traveling, and you've stayed in a motel like that. When he describes <laughs> trying to start the car that way, and somebody comes up and wants to borrow your jumper jumper cables, you've met those people. They're just a little out there. And everybody has a scheme in a Portis novel. And uh, you meet some interesting characters, definitely, throughout. You mentioned his brother will be part of the symposium? Yes. Uh, Jonathan Portis, the uh, youngest of the three brothers, uh, he will be uh, in Q&A session with Jay Jennings the first evening. Jay Jennings is our uh, keynote speaker as well. And we're, we're thrilled to both have, uh, to have both of them there. What can you tell me about Jay Jennings? Jay Jennings has recently won the Porter Prize, and that's a major award. It's a major award uh, <laughs> with uh, journalism in general and writing. Uh, he has edited the collected works of Charles Portis, and so we're thrilled to have his input. And um, people can come and ask those questions during our keynote and during the first night as well. But we're Thursday, Friday, Saturday um, it's, it's throughout. There are events. There are extra tours, at, uh, special museum tours at several of our local museums, such as the Drennan Scott House, uh, the Fort Smith Museum of History, Fort Smith National Historic Site, the Clayton House, and the U.S. Marshals Museum, as well as Miss Laura's. So uh, everybody is on board with promoting downtown and promoting the region. And so it's, it's a mixture of tourism and literary conference and celebration and investigation and history, obviously. (laughs) It's all of it. And and the best symposiums branch out, right? You have ripples because there, there's music is brought in. That's right. And religion and humor. Yes. Uh, Some of our people are covering the music in in film adaptations, or they're covering faith, or they're covering uh, travel. Uh, So it really does run the gamut. The official title is... um, Works and Influence of Charles Portis. Influence. Interesting word there. Right. How do you explore that? Well, because we not only want to cover what it is on the page, but what is, as you said, the ripple effect. Um, One of his greatest short stories, I think, is almost an editorial. Um, When he's younger, he talks of uh, pre-war Arkansas. And, uh, you know, he went into the Korean conflict as well as a Marine. And he talks about uh, the way he describes going through... Uh, as a child and, and going through streams and just what the area was like pre-war and then post-war uh, where he grew up and then later uh, and the reflection of society. Those things are interesting to talk about. So he's, he's a brilliant writer. He really captures a moment and captures a, a place. Tom, I mean, the novel, when it came out, there, there are Portis fans. There are Portis devotees. That had one life. Then John Wayne wins <laughs> his only Oscar in that movie, and that has its place. Then the Coen brothers two of the most respected directors, mm-hmm. it has its place. How often in your line of work, 
you've been at the at, at you know at the historic site. You've been at the U, UAFS. How often do you hear visitors bring up True Grit? Is it still something they talk about? Well, you know, not long after I got hired at UA Fort Smith, uh, they ha- they they include the book in the Read This program. So it was it was something that was read across the curriculum across campus. Right. Did a lot of programming uh, about it. So so it's it's always had a certain buzz. Uh, campus-wide uh, in, in my time there. But uh, but I guess to answer your question, quite often, um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of uh, retired people. I do a lot of programming that, that's, uh, that's for lifelong learners. I do a lot of, I, I teach in a regular classroom, so I have the average college student also. Um, their frame of reference on it is, is definitely pretty strong. And um, you know, one of the things I wanted to, to say that appeals to me, because I, I teach history of Arkansas almost every semester. That's, that's one of my courses. And, uh, and being a sixth-generation, you know, Arkansas-er mm-hmm. that I am, uh, one of the things I appreciate so much about Portis is his, is his Arkansas perspective. Because he, he, he really, that just comes alive in that book. And I've, I've read the book and reread the book and watched the movies. And, and you know, every time I'm, I'm scanning channels he likes to and, pick on and they're on, I'm going to watch it. He does. <laughs> you, know, he had, you know, there's that Texas thing, that, that Texas rivalry is there. But um, but you know it's it, it's it's enduring it's it's lasting and when you when you use a word like influences um, uh, in terms of naming the symposium I think that's perfect because uh, he's he's had a long lasting influence and I I think we're gonna I think we're gonna see Portis endure. You know who else is going to endure is Maddie Ross, one of the great characters, mm-hmm. and I mean this this. Heroine who is, you know, a teenager and fighting for what she thinks is right and stubborn. Mm-hmm. When I've taught the book, I compare her to Huckleberry Finn. Mm. And also when the book comes out in 1968, uh, how she is a, a proto-feminist in 1968. Who in their right mind would write a Western with a teenage girl at the center of it? Charles Portis. Mm-hmm. That took guts. And then, you know, you look at the historical side of that, which is women were in the background right. at that time in history. So it, it is such a um, – it, it, there's, there's such a two sides to that. You that, did mention, though, I want to go back to that, that that was our true grit, common read in 2009, 2010. Our entire campus, almost uh, 80% of our classes, they were reading that book. And we had uh, the National Historic Site doing uh, true grit – courtroom reenactments in the original Parker courtroom. Uh, we were a part of that then. And so we also had local high school students reading it and discussing it. And so in some ways, the symposium has been going on ever since. Will there be discussion about the man himself? Yes. Beyond just his wor- the words yes. he's written? Uh, as part of the Q&A with Jonathan, uh, he's going to go into the background of, of his brother and his family. And he's uh, shared some photos with us. And uh, I'll ask him some questions about that as we moderate through the Q&A. But the audience is open to ask questions as well, whatever they'd like to know. But that is part of it, too. Um, Jay Jennings has also uh, brought some of the biographical data into his uh, Escape Velocity collection and this collection, the new collection, the Collected Works, released uh, in April 2023 from Library of America series, which is a great honor for Portis. Mm-hmm. Escape Velocity collects a lot of that journalism right. that Portis did. Right, about civil rights or about uh, travel, um, <laughs> the, the call-in list, you know. Uh, he, he just has some very quirky... Um, articles, uh, his humor was always uh, underneath. When you have younger readers, Mm -hmm. do they connect? 
I think they do. They they love the fact that uh, Cheney keeps saying, "I've been shot by a child" and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> just great little uh, liners and and Ned Pepper and fill your hands and those types oh. of lines. And not only in the film, but uh, obviously in the uh, the novels. You talk about his quirkiness. I I, I mean. Quirky's kind of a, I don't know if that's the best word for, for Charles Portis, but he was he was very unique. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- when when we reopened the National Historic Site after the tornado damage was repaired and we had a large grand opening and we had uh, the chiefs of, of tribal you know, nations from, from Oklahoma and all kinds of dignitaries there, we, we tried to get him to come. Because of the because of the book and what it means to Fort Smith and um, and he declined us and but I called him and talked to him and uh, and what he told me was he said I he said I don't like to do big crowds much but he said if you'll come down here to Little Rock I'll buy you a cup of coffee and I, I to this day I wish I had I was about to I, ask I, I wish I had taken him, him up on that but I, I never I never got a chance to but uh, but he just didn't want to you know he his writing was so amazing yet he just did not want to be in front of the front of people in the public it's kind of interesting. Thank you both for coming in. Thank you very much. Congratulations on the symposium. Thank you very much. Kevin Jones is a professor of English at UAFS and an organizer of the Works and Influences of Charles Portis Symposium that begins Thursday. Tom Wing is a presenter at the symposium and assistant professor of history at UAFS, as well as director of the Drennan Scott House in Van Buren. A complete schedule of the symposium, including opportunities to tour the U.S. Marshals Museum, the Drennan Scott House, and more, can be found by entering UAFS Charles Portis into your search engine. You can also find a complete list of the many entities working together to create the symposium. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, a pair of duos. Trout Fishing in America discusses a busy post-pandemic year that includes headlining a night of the upcoming 74th Original Ozark Folk Festival in Eureka Springs. It it is still surprising how many people are seeing us for the first time. The next question I'll ask once I find out somebody's asked that has seen us for the first time is, "Oh, what brought you here?" They normally pointed a friend. I said, "What kind of music did they say that we played?" And I get these blank stares. (laughs) They just shake their head. They don't know what kind of music we we don't know what kind of music we play. And we'll meet two of the actors in Theater Squared's production of The Band's Visit. I mean, it is a, a fish out of water story, and you could definitely equate that to absolutely the the, the cast and crew that have come down here to do that. Um, yeah. But it's not. But you know, we made the decision to be here, and and we're loving it. Exactly. The band is like there by mistake. Surely. And then, of course, hijinks ensue. <laughs> Two pairs for the first day of November. That's on tomorrow's. Ozarks at Large. That's at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF, and then 7 tomorrow night in Central Arkansas on Little Rock Public Radio's KUAR. And the Ozarks at Large podcast, also available on all major podcast platforms.
Tonight on KUAF, Peter Vandegraaff presents the best in classical music, including an overture to a lesser-known Mozart opera. Mozart and more tonight in the first hour of Peter Vandegraaff's Classical Music at 8 on KUAF. And you can hear classical music at any time by tuning in to KUAF2 on your HD radio, streaming at KUAF.com, or by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF2. Before we leave today, just a bit more with the Western history of Fort Smith. Yesterday, when Kevin Jones and Tom Wing were here to talk about Charles Portis, I also asked them about the new television series about legendary U.S. Marshal Bass Reeves that debuts Friday on Paramount. We'll hear from Tom Wing first. Sidney Thompson has written a, a trilogy about Bass Reeves. I actually talked to Sidney a couple of times and, and uh, pointed him towards some, some uh, facts and, and things. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how, how they, they pull that together into the Yellowstone world and, uh, you know, uh, to see how that works. I, I, I'm, I have great hopes for it. Um, the, the one thing for sure, though, is I can remember a day when, when I would go into a, uh, to do a program on the deputy marshals of Fort Smith and no one in the room would know who Bass Reeves was. Then there was Art Burton. And then, and, and through the work of Art Burton, through, through, through all of the, through a statue being developed at Fort Smith, through the U.S. Marshals Museum, um, Inclusion in that HBO series, The Watchmen. Yes, I mean, yes, yeah. and, and 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 other venues. I mean, we we saw we saw recently a BBC magazine historical magazine that the BBC puts out had a story about Bass Reeves. Mm-hmm. So he's global, and and that's what's really exciting here. I'm 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 less worried about the historical accuracies <laughs> uh, in that regard, and just glad that that Bass has his name out there and that people are going to go, wow, this is an amazing American story. Tom Wing and Kevin Jones from UAFS in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio yesterday talking about the upcoming Bass Reeves television series that starts Friday on Paramount. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Randy Wilburn, Matthew Moore, and Jacqueline Froelich. Our underwriting director is Ryan Versi. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for being with us. Please be careful. Have a safe Halloween. KUAF is partnering with Eureka Springs CAPC to give away tickets to the Eureka Springs 76th Annual Original Folk Festival. That's two pairs of tickets for Trout Fishing in America and Matt the Electrician November 10th. Winners announced during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large, November 3rd. KUAF.com for more.